Welcome to The Game Last Night. I am your host, Olivia Christian. Thank you so much for clicking play. My guest on this episode is Kenny Main. You know him from ESPN, where he spent 27 years hosting shows, talking highlights, alongside other OGs like Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. Since his transition, which we dive into, his cup runneth over with about a million other opportunities. Kenny Main, I think Kenny has the kind of name we have to say his first and his last name. Kenny Main. Otherwise, it's, it sounds off. Anyways, he and I talk about the Mariners ending their postseason drought. He was at the game where they clinched the wild card. His desire to attend the cookout, if you know, you know, and his charity, runfreely.org. But before we get into any of that, we talk about his podcast, also an odyssey, called Hey Main, and how it came to be. Let's dive in. Well, the people from Odyssey, they're the ones distributing and producing it. They came to me a long time ago, like pretty much close to when I left ESPN a little bit after. And I, I was putting people off like... I had a bunch of calls like, do you want to try this or do this and startups and other companies legitimately in business already? Not that the others are illegitimate, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. the choice was kind of like a sure thing or a less sure thing, you know? And I just said, I'm not ready to do that yet. And I kept putting it off. And then I signed up with Caesars. So I'm doing a lot of commercial work and promotional work and and whatnot for Caesars. I'm going to football games this fall. Like they're putting on this tour with the Caesars truck you know driving around the u.s um but then i got back in touch with the pot the podcast people at odyssey and just said if i can make it be what i want it to be i'd be interested but i don't want to be hey let's do just sports or the top 10 football games ever whatever people would expect right for all those espn years and they agreed to the format that i was hoping for so it's really been more like i hope it succeeds but even if it doesn't it's been kind of a thrill just doing what i've done and and getting all the people who have agreed to go on to go on. And we've had one season, we're just finishing season two tapings and it starts on October 13th. So I think the first one's gonna be Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann together. Oh my got, goodness. And then we got Sue Bird um, from there. We've taped a bunch of others, but we're not sure of the order. So I, I'm really lucky. I've met all these different people through the years, worked with some of them and somehow, some way, most of them agreed to go on. Well, I think they, they love you, Kenny. You have a particular type of style and storytelling, your dry, deadpan humor. At least that's how I receive it. I don't know if, if you're putting it out there a different way, but I receive it definitely as sarcastic and deadpan. But I want to go back to what you said about this podcast being what you want it to be. Because when I found it, I, I follow you on Twitter. So I heard about it and I went to the link and I saw all the folks that you had lined up for guests. And I was surprised, frankly, but pleasantly surprised because of the mm -hmm. diversity of guests that you lined up and you've named a few already. But in your first season, it's legal experts and actors and comedians. And um, it sounds purposeful. It sounds like something that you've wanted to do, but has that always been something you wanted to do or just because of the evolution of your career, it led you to wanting to kind of branch yeah. out beyond. I'd say like I played football in college at UNLV, but I studied for broadcasting and political science. And I wanted to be, you know, Ken Burns at this point, or be working for frontline or be doing something way more serious than sports. But I just sort of fell into doing sports because I was at a little station in Seattle a long time ago and they added a weekend show. We always joke, if there's news on the weekends, it's news to us. It was like a Monday through Friday operation. They added weekend and the boss is like, you played football, you're doing sports. And it wasn't like against my will, but it certainly wasn't, I wasn't like waving my hand like I want to do sports. I always wanted to do something more serious. So I think all these things have always been in my 
um, you know, in my life and, and growing up, you know, like we grew up watching the evening news together as a family and reading the paper and having political discussions. And I'm far more interested in that than I am in sports. I just happen to have made sports the way I got paid, right? Like calling highlights and not that I don't like sports. I don't mean it that way. It just, it's not as important, you know? So I think this gave me the opportunity to kind of show that we had Sarah Kenzior, we had uh, Jason Kander, who ran for political office. This time around, we got Soledad O'Brien, I did just today. I'm hoping to get Evan McMullen, who's running for Senate against Mike Lee in Utah. Uh, he's the guy that was in the Republican Party and he quit because of Trump, and now he's independent. Um, so hopefully, kind of like when you go across the board, we'll have some athletes. Well, Lenny Wilkins said yes. Steve Kerr said yes. Um, we'll have former athletes, current athletes, we'll have some entertainers, we'll also have some politicians, we'll also have some political experts. So in the end, you kind of get a much broader, you know, a broader menu than you might have expected for somebody that did a bunch of highlights for 20 odd years. Growing up in Seattle, I wonder like beyond just watching the news with your family um, and being educated, like were you around a diverse community? Because there's a particular type of wokeness and the real sense of the word, not the new way that they interpret wokeness, but that mm -hmm. I think that you have. And I'm always curious to know how a particular, like a white man becomes woke. You're very <laughs> Steve Kerr-like. I wanna know how that happened to you. Um, yeah, you, you made a good point though that that word has been misappropriated, uh, came from black culture, and then it got stolen by white people to mean anything that's good is called woke. If you're for helping the poor, that's woke. If you're for equal rights, if you're for gay rights, if you know, right, they just kind of weaponized that word. Um, I would say it's my dad because he worked for United Airlines. He worked at the airport. He drove an old beat up car, you know, back and forth to work, always put his family first. He got up at 5 a.m. every day for 40 years. And we would we, we lived on this little tiny lake south of the airport called Star Lake. And we would have the company picnic for United. They'd have like a double header, like for the day shift and the evening shift. And it was like a United Nations showed up at my house every summer two times and very, very early in my life, seven, eight, nine years old, I didn't think a thing of there are black people here, there are gay people here, there's this and that here. And it didn't matter because they worked with my dad. So if they're my dad's friends, they must be cool. And I'd see him at the airport and, and also athletics, I think, you know, playing football and, and being with a wide mix of people from different places, from different towns and, and, different colors. Like, I think you quickly, like, you know, you're a team. It doesn't, we used to joke at UNLV, they called themselves this. So it's not my white joke, the running blacks, they called themselves because they were all black. So, and you just didn't care. They taught me how to play dominoes. Uh, what did I teach? Not much. A uh, bunch of kids from Inglewood and Compton and, 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 and Crenshaw and everywhere. And, and so I think just my young years, that enlightened me to treat people equally. And my dad always told me, treat the janitor the same way you treat the vice president of the company, like as people, and one might hold a higher position, but they're, they're still both human and they each deserve the same respect. I respect that, that's incredible. Especially the part about sports, because that's something that I convey a lot. The fact that athletes, professional athletes, collegiate, even on a high school level, if you're playing sports with a diverse team, you are seeing people who look different than you, who have different religions, have, you know, they eat different dinners, they use different, they have different traditions. But when you're on the field together, the court together, the grass together, you're, you're all trying to um, obtain one goal, and that is mm -hmm. to win. 
So you see each other as assets. You try to put each other in a place to be successful, and you're not adversaries. You've got a goal in mind. And when you don't grow up that way, I think it kind of limits your ideas around what people are capable of. And then, oh, then comes in the fear and then the stereotypes. Well, and also, like, you've seen how many times have you seen those little videos? I see them on Twitter a lot where you see a bunch of kids in a preschool, and they're three and four years old. They're not judging anything. They're just like, hey, there's my buddy from preschool. I'm going to go hang out with him or her. And there's, they, have, they haven't learned to look at people different because they look different. They've just learned that that's my friend at preschool. And kind of like that innocence gets lost. And it's usually taught, right? You don't, you don't grow up or, or just come out of the womb, you know, having racist views. Like somebody has to teach you that. Somebody has to teach you hateful things. And, and I think it's displayed best when you see like little kids, how they relate, go to a park, go to a restaurant, go anywhere. Kids will start playing together because they don't know any different. They haven't been taught any different. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that your wokeness has stayed with you beyond your college years. I listened to your interview with Jamel Hill, which is an incredible interview. I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that. I mean, listen to the entire season and the new season. One thing that was interesting, to, well, there are a lot of things that were interesting to me in your conversation with Jamel Hill, one of which is the fact that you guys were throwing up fists as you passed each mm -hmm. other in the ESP NOS. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> but you made the comment <laughs> that you have been invited to the cookout seven sure. or eight times. Yes. And I, I again, your, your humor is dry and sarcastic and I love it. And you said to Jamel, uh, is this cookout ever going to happen? And I'm telling you, I laughed out. I could not believe it. But then I thought, maybe he really does think there's an actual cookout. I'm sure you don't. But did, no, are you waiting for I it? Because I'm like actually waiting for that. I feel like there really should be. There should be a physical celebration of this thing that's talked about metaphorically and make it really happen and, and have an event, maybe a series. Maybe every town should throw a physical, real cookout and everybody get together and maybe that would improve things. Well, it, it at least happens once a year around Juneteenth. And yeah. Juneteenth is a, is a new holiday for a number of people. People just didn't know that it happened. Even in small, like I'm from San Jose, the black population is 3%. And they lived on the other side of town than my family did. But mm -hmm. Juneteenth came around and that's when we came out. We had the cookout. And mm -hmm. now I have friends of mine who are wishing me a happy Juneteenth. I'm like, this is so, this is so weird. You said happy Juneteenth. My, that's my daughter tried to correct me because I actually... We were together on this Juneteenth of, of 2022. I didn't think it was, she thought it was like coming off as patronizing that if you wished a good Juneteenth to a black person, you sound like you're trying too hard. I think she overjudges me for everything personally, but I was like, <laughs> it came out naturally. Like it'd be like saying happy fourth, happy this, happy that. It just came out. So I don't regret I to each his own. You know, if you yeah. know some black folks, I'm sure they're not going to get mad at you for saying <laughs> happy Juneteenth. Strangers might be like, what? Um, yeah. Okay, but well, they won't be mad it at you. Stranger, it was a, don't you, like, as you're ordering something at a coffee shop or a restaurant, whatever, you thank the person, right? You give them money and thank you. Thank you for giving me that. It was like, have a good Juneteenth. Nothing wrong with having a good Juneteenth. But mm -hmm. I, I hear you. We should have like an actual cookout that's just the cookout. Mm -hmm. And we invite all the people that we've been categorizing as allies right. to come and, and hang out with us. Well, in my mind, an ally is someone who doesn't just, you know, not call the cops on Black people <laughs> when they're just minding them. That's not an ally. An ally is actually vocalizing support for them, for marginalized communities. And again, that's something that you 
have been doing through your podcasts, through your Twitter feed. Um, and uh, again, I think it's incredible that you do that. I wonder about all of the athletes, all of the people in sports media that you've come across over the decades of experience that you had. Would you say that they are more likely to be like-minded with you? Um, or are they kind of on the fence or crazy racist? I have my theories. I think a little of all of it. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it, and you touched on at the very, very beginning, is about education. Like people, not everyone, and I'm not saying I'm so smart. I, I just mean, I think a lot of people just stay in their own little world and they don't try to learn more and see things from different viewpoints the same. But I'd say most people are on the good side of that question that you were just asking but hesitant to put their name on it, right? To say it out loud. And some people are less afraid of that. I remember somebody asked me, it was a boss actually asked, why do you have to go on? Why do you have to say what you say? I was like, I don't know, because I have a conscience, because I have daughters, because I have a wife, because I want to live with myself. Like, I, I've always thought, if you weren't going to say something in these times, I guess you'll never say anything about anything, right? Like, given everything that's happened since, you know, pretty much since he came down the escalator um, mm -hmm. and accused all Mexicans of being rapists. And then it got worse from there. Like if you weren't willing to say, oh, you know what, I can't live with myself if I don't publicly say I'm against all of this. And then there were 20,000 examples to be against, right? It wasn't like one thing. Who says that they, they, uh, they flood crime with scandal, you know, like, like there's, there's just been a lot to be exercised about. And I, I just find it hard to believe that people were just in this time period, just going to sit on the sidelines and say nothing. Like, I don't know, what do your kids think of you? Like, I always wondered 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, won't your children or their children go, what did you say during those times? What did you do during those? Because everybody always thinks they're here like, oh, during civil rights, I would have marched down in Mississippi and I would have done this. I would have been for the North. I would you know, and who the hell knows, right? Until you're faced with it. Not that I fought any wars or, or put myself on the line necessarily that way, but definitely there are risks to saying things out loud, right? Naming names and calling things as you see fit. You're risking your job in some cases. Like at ESPN, there was always this mandate. Everybody thinks they're so liberal and all that, but there was always the fear of, oh, got it. Don't, don't cross the Jamel line. Jamel's She's going full bore. She's going hard in the paint. The rest of us kind of watched Jamel do that and kind of contributed, but probably didn't do it in the same way as she did. And she almost stood alone, I would say, in, in great regard. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you talking about the civil rights movement um, and, and linking it to what we're seeing today because, you know, the way these things are perpetuated in time, racism, misogyny, all of those things, it's because of the silent majority or at least the people who think they're in the majority. Well, I would mm -hmm. never be for that. And like you said, if I lived in that time, I would have been marching, mm -hmm. I would imprint. Well, so, well what, what did your grandparents tell you about what they did? What did your grandparents do? What did yep. your parents do? And now what are you doing? And as oh, you said, it's like, how do you, everyone kind of makes themselves the hero in their story. I would have done those things. But when you're confronted with it in real time, now you see who you really are. You see what your values really are, how much you care about other people, how open you are to feeling uncomfortable, risking it all um, in order to stand up for what's right. 
And that's what, again, what has attracted me to who you've been professionally. And the fact that you have the types of guests on your show that you've named leads me to believe that you've made a lot of friends because of the fact, because of that fact, that you've stayed true to who you are and and didn't just sit in the background, but spoke up when it was your opportunity to speak up. It's funny you said it because I was mentioning this today. You know, Twitter is in particular is noted as being so toxic and people are just, you know, fighting each other from their camps. But it's also been a great vehicle for, in my life anyway, for many good things. Like I've made so many new friend, acquaintances or friends, whatever you want to call them, just through, I mean, this interview came about because of Twitter, right? And yeah. I've, in a whole bunch of ways, like you'll see somebody take a point of view, you follow them, they follow you or they already were. And you just, I'll send little encouragement notes. Hey, appreciate what you're doing today. And they'll come back to me, you know, similarly. So I think it's it's actually been a good, like, you know, little piece of, what's, what's the word? Just public discourse and on the side also to create actual real one-on-one friendships and also supporting each other. And it just feels good to know like, hey, I'm, this, I like what this lady's saying or I like what this guy's saying. And they appreciate that you're giving them support one way or the other. These days, I don't know of anyone who stays at a company for more than like two years. If I hear someone say they work somewhere for five years, I'm like, five years? That's insane. Kenny Maine was at ESPN for 27. So next we're going to hear about the days leading up to the end of his career there and the days and the weeks and months after. I'd love for you to share about your mental, your emotional transition from being that guy who potentially self-identified as this ESPN Sports Center highlights guy and how we as viewers see you to what you're doing now. Like what was that transition like for you? I think it's still happening. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I've figured out fully what it is I want to do or going to do. There's a couple of things I have my hand in that I'm hoping work out. Nothing against what I'm doing with Caesars. I love that relationship and I love the podcast. Those have kind of been the two, the one, two things. I've done a few things for NBC or Peacock. Did the uh, dog show with Katie Nolan. That was actually great fun. I did the Olympics for Peacock. Done a couple commercials here and there. So like, I've done a whole bunch of different things. The main ones being Caesars and this podcast, but I'd say it was it was pretty quick. Like it's the old, how did you lose all your money? And the and the rich guy says it was slow at first, then it was all at once. You know, so it's kind of the same thing. Like I was working there, and then I wasn't. You know, like the <laughs> May twenty fourth. I know the date. And the funnier part was, I remember announcing that I was leaving after I had my last meeting with the boss that was telling me, you know, here's the offer. That was May 10th. And I usually don't have the sharper memory. I just happened to remember those two dates. And so I put a thing on Twitter that I was leaving, but I still had eight shows on the month schedules. So I could have just told them, hey, I'm done. I'm out. You don't have to pay me the last two weeks or whatever. But I didn't want to do that because I've really just been kind of shorting my friends. John Anderson would have had to work four extra days or whatever. Right. So I said, I'll live up to my schedule. But it was kind of slow motion and kind of surreal. Like, this is weird. I know I'm leaving in two and a half weeks, but I still got to do tonight's Cubs Marlins game. Like it, it all, it felt weird because you still wanted to do well. You know, you always had pride in each show, but it also like I'm leaving in two weeks. Like that's where, so the very last show was actually probably the best show I ever did. Um, mm-hmm. And the very next day, Gretchen and I flew to San Diego because my daughter Riley had just graduated from Boulder and we didn't get to do a, you know, because of COVID, there wasn't like a legit 
graduation. So we went to San Diego, Del Mar to celebrate me leaving ESPN, but mostly her graduating from college and just kind of moved on. Like we looked at that summer, Gretchen and I talked it through, like we had a bunch of different options. You know, it was a little scary, but a little fun at the same time. We kind of made last summer just be, let's do a couple fun trips and let's figure out what we're doing by fall. You know, we'll give ourselves a few months to figure out what makes sense. And it all just ended up making sense. So to me, it's like everything that's come since leaving there has felt like a pension. Part of the pension plan is I get to work for Caesars and I get to do a podcast and I get to do, you know what I mean? Like it almost came as a gift. Thank you for your service. Here's all the stuff you get to do. And I'm still working. Like, I don't want to not work for a good long time. Like I'd be bored. So how much golf can you actually play? It's kind of a decision sometimes we make, how we accept change in our lives. Do we go under the bed? I think I saw it coming. And to their credit, they kind of warned me, like, you're not going to love our offer, which was an indication that I wouldn't. I said, well, try me. Tell me how bad it is, you know. So when they told me and there was no room to counter, typically, in the, it was always like a car deal, right? They'd say one price, I'd say a price, we'd have a meeting, you know, I'd pretend I'm going to quit. They'd come up and I'd stay. Like we did that like 11 times. But this time they put a number out and I said, seriously, like you're not moving off that? And they said, no. And I said, okay, then I guess I'm out. So, and I'm, and I'm totally fine. There's like no sour grapes whatsoever. They made a business decision that I wasn't worth what I used to be worth. And they're going to do good work still. They got great people. They got great shows. Like, you know, it's no knock on the company as a whole. They just decided in, in my case that I wasn't worth it to them anymore. So I decided, you know, like in sports, you play the over under on total points. I went and played the over and I'd rather risk it and gamble on myself than accept how they had minimized me. And, and I'm happy I did. The gambling on yourself. I love that. And I think that's what a lot of athletes are doing these days. So like, mm-hmm. you know, every time you feel like you're celebrated, the whole town loves you, you're winning, you're hitting home runs. But when it's time to renegotiate that contract, mm-hmm. suddenly it's, well, you're not quite what you think you're worth. And it's a wake up call. And, and a lot of times it's like, oh, I understand this is the business side. As much as you love your job, love your colleagues, a lot of times those decisions um, come as a shock from management. It's it's, it can be a culture shock and be an emotional shock. And that's what I wanted to understand from you. At least, at least it wasn't like a band-aid. You had been kind of prepped a little bit to be yeah, I think so. disappointed. I mean, you know, they've in certain ways though, they've put money into certain people and certain shows that they prioritize and they didn't with me, but like, Oh, well, like the, I love the opportunity I had there. It allowed me to be in the position I'm in right now to do these other things. Right. On the other hand, I helped them as well. Like, I don't feel, I remember Susie Colbert told me this a long time ago, like, no, you, whatever you get, you deserve totally. You don't ever have to apologize for getting a good deal or, you know, feeling blessed. I mean, you should feel blessed, but, but you're then giving them what you have, right? Like I must have been worth something. So no, there was never like any big self-doubt, like, oh, I'm not as good as people thought I was or that I thought I was. I just looked at it like they're cutting back. They need to show a better profit loss margin. Then again, in that time, a year later, you know, Troy and, and Joe Buck, apparently me giving back and it was no, nowhere near what they're getting. And I, I don't begrudge them at all. Good for them. They, 
you know, if you sell a house for a certain price, that's how much it's worth, right? Because one person agreed with you. So it's the same thing for anybody who signs a contract for whatever that contract is worth. Um, but in my case, individually, they decided that I should be minimized and I decided that I should go try it somewhere else. I'm hopeful to put together a show show, like, you know, a show you sit and watch on eight episodes on Netflix or Hulu or whoever the hell is going to buy it. Hasn't happened yet, but sometimes it takes a while. So if it never happens, it never happens. But I have a couple ideas for something like more just pure comedy that I think I could pull off if given a chance. Yeah. Well, I heard you say, uh, if it happens, it happens. And uh, it makes me think about the Mariners, which I know that's kind of a wild transition mm -hmm. to go from oh, talking about there. this. I was in Seattle. I went to Seattle last Thursday, and I don't know when this is running, but Thursday the 28th, I guess. 29th. 29th, I'm sorry. Yes, because on the 30th, Friday the 30th, we had a charity event I was going out for in Seattle, and we went to it. The event was more or less over. Then afterward, there was a basketball game. It was the Clippers versus an Israeli team. And no offense to either Clippers or the Israeli team, but the Mariners were playing five miles away with the possibility <laughs> of clinching a playoff for the first time since 2001. So I got a couple of tickets from the Mariner guy because I had done them a couple of favors during the season, did some promos they put on the big board. And I get to the gate and it's like sixth innings about to start and our ticket locked up. Like, you know, like on your Ticketmaster app. I couldn't make it show. So the lady's like, you oh. don't see that. And I said, no, I really, I'm explaining. Somehow we sweet talked our way in with technically <laughs> no ticket. Got out. We didn't know where our seats were. So we just roamed around down the line and out in the outfield. And so we were there for that home run, Cal Raleigh and the Mariners for the first time in forever, 21 years. So it was, it was an amazing night because we had a really good charity event, helping some old Sonic players who need a little assistance. I still think they're about to get a new franchise. I think that's happening, if not tonight, any day. I could be dead wrong, but all the rumors that we're hearing. Uh, so I hope that's true. And it was a beautiful night. It was one of my favorite nights I've ever spent there. I was going to say, how incredible is it that you happen to be in town? Yeah. You happen to get a ticket. You happen to be able to get in decide, besides the fact that your ticket wasn't working. Yeah. I think if, <laughs> I feel like all the stars were aligning yeah. for you and the Mariners as a hometown kid oh, being best. able to see that happen. Yeah. So I hope, well, they, hope they get that momentum, you know, that energy for making it and can make as deep a drive as they deserve, whatever that is. It, is it satisfying enough that they just got this far after having no, been? not at all. I think it's like anything else. Once you've hit here, you want to go here, right? I mean, whatever happens, happens at this point. It's That was an accomplishment, but they were so close last year. A couple of years, a few years ago, it was very similar where they almost got in. Um, I don't know. They have they have a really cool energy about them. Like, they, they're having fun. They have no pressure on them. Nobody expects them. Houston won the division by you know however many games dodgers won how many games so nobody thinks that seattle can do that much more than just make it and they got to go play on the road now for these playoff games so we'll see i feel like that's the best place to be in where no one's expecting anything oh, from sure. you and you can just concentrate on having fun yeah I mean, well I you mentioned the fact that you think the the sonics the supersonics will be coming back in some form i was going to ask you about this because you know the storm 
the team from the WNBA, they have a giant fan base in Seattle. When I see those games, it's oh, yeah. packed in there and big time fans. I wonder if Seattle needs or deserves an NBA team. Is it enough to just have a WNBA team and well, not an NBA team? wrong with just having a WNBA, but I think that town deserves both. I, the fact that they ever left is insane. That's a whole nother story, but, um, and I'm friends with Sue and I was so happy for her great final season. They were so close when she, she hit the three in the corner against Las Vegas in game three. I'm like, okay, we're going to go up two one. And then they, how in the hell did they even score? There's like 0.7 or eight or whatever it was. Then we lose in overtime. Then they lost the next game. So they were very close to beating Las Vegas. Las Vegas then went on to win the whole thing. Um, but yeah, Seattle's been without an NBA team with 2008, I think. I haven't gone to Starbucks since. Because uh, that, that guy, he was the principal owner who sold um, to people who don't <laughs> live. That's the problem. You can't sell something to people who don't live in your town because that means they might take it to their town. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, and I don't hold anything at Oklahoma people. Like, I'm, you know, I'm sure that they support that team. They've had some good teams. But I yeah. want a brand new team. And Adam Silver hinted pretty strongly, I think it's been a year, year and a half, that it's almost getting time that we can do two more franchises. There's so many damn international players. There's enough There's enough talent. We can do it. And they got an amazing new gym. They rebuilt the old Coliseum, which was then called Key Arena. Now it's called the Climate Pledge Arena. The Kraken play there. The Storm play there. Um, concerts play there. And hopefully men's basketball will soon play there. I have no idea how soon it'll happen. It just seems like everything is set up for a more imminent announcement than we might have expected. Well, I I, I hope Seattle gets a team um, because I, I feel like the fan base, it's a really a sports town. I mean, I know the Mariners have been dry for a while there. And, you know, with baseball, it's a different challenge because the game is long and the season is long, but yeah. the fan base has been consistent, especially with the storm and the Seahawks. And I think you need to reward teams, reward cities that have a fan base that are going to come out. And like you said, yeah. there, there are a ton of athletes all over the world who could jump into these cities and play these games and be mm-hmm. supported. I was bummed that Jamal Crawford, before he officially retired, I wanted to see him come back to Seattle to play for the new expansion team, but that didn't time out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good sports town. They support, you know, the Huskies, they support everything. They support the Sounders, they support women's soccer. There's a lacrosse, there's a rugby team. You know, we got, we got a bunch of stuff, a lot of little colleges as well. And Seahawks have always gotten great support from the start. Mariners like anywhere else when there's some rough years, just like there are in other cities, you know, you're not going to get a full house every night, but when things are going well, I mean, they filled that place up. They'll they'll fill it up if they get a playoff game. Earlier in this episode, you heard Kenny Main talk about how he got into sports broadcasting, kind of by accident. He was a quarterback, so they put him on the sports show. What you might not have known is he was actually signed to the Seattle Seahawks before an injury ended his career. But that injury from a long time ago is helping him help others today. Let's hear about it. I ruined my ankle playing football way back when. And about four years ago, I got this new brace, like a device that I wear if I want to do, I just ran in it today. I just did some exercise this afternoon. Um, and I can do that because of this device. It's called an ExoSim. So Gretchen and I started a foundation and we give them to veterans who need them. 
So it's called runfreely.org, R-U-N-F-R-E-E-L-Y, runfreely.org. And we raise money and as we go along, and next, next time we get to a certain amount, we can contact the next veteran and bring he or she up to Seattle. And we've, we've helped about 35 veterans in four years. So it's not a ton. We're not the Red Cross. We don't have a building. We don't have employees. It's just kind of me and my Twitter telling the story. But if people yeah. read that website, they can see the story behind it. The day I broke my leg uh, and the good people that are helping out. Steve Kerr helped out. Jamal Crawford is our biggest contributor, actually. Uh, Steve Largent, Jerry Rice, Gary Payton, Lenny Wilkins, Dale Earnhardt. A uh, whole bunch of good people have either lent their name or their money or both. And then a lot of $10 and $20 and whatever from, you know, more anonymous people around the country that have heard about it. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Game Last Night. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. But one last thing before we go. I am a big believer in doing the work and betting on yourself. And so is Kenny Maine. If you don't believe me, listen to this last bit right here. I'm often kind of stunned when I meet professional athletes or collegiate athletes because we all play something when we're little. We might play a little bit of everything. But as you get older and older, people aren't as good. You know, they start sucking and like, you don't get picked for the team. You can't make yeah. the team. You're on the bench. But to play on a collegiate level, I, I wonder when actually you realized or other people may have realized for you that you were good. You, you oh, were good, yeah. good. No, I had to work. I I think that's one of my best stories of perseverance. When I when I was in like ninth grade, I was 5'8", 135 pounds, and I was second string they would play the game and then they, they, for the, for the bad players, they'd have an extra quarter. They call it the fifth quarter. So we don't play it all in the regular game. Then they have a bonus quarter for the handful of people who didn't get in. <laughs> I've never heard yeah. of a bonus quarter. It was, it was kind of sad, but it was also good because it was giving you a little experience. So at least you got to do a little bit, but it was, it was, for, it was like the, the scrub game basically. Now I thought I was good enough to be in the real game. And the coach finally recognized that I could throw about midway in the season. I was going to start the next game. And I broke my leg middle of the week and, and was out for the rest of the year. So I didn't quit. Went up to high school, having had not much of a junior high career. Um, And it took a minute to get even recognized there, but I just kept getting bigger and stayed with it. That's the one thing I could do well. And I cared about. Um, And I ended up going to junior college. Then I ended up at UNLV on a scholarship didn't play that much there. I was only like second string. The kid who played ahead of me my senior year named Sam King led the nation in passing yards. So uh, I was in against somebody pretty good. Randall Cunningham was a freshman when I was a senior. So we, we had some talent around us. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I chose UNLV. I wish I'd played better and more, but don't regret it. And all the relationships I made, obviously, you know, through the years as well. Is there a, a football mentality a lesson that you bring to how you approach life or work now? I, I think I brought that to football is what I described. Like, like just not giving up on yourself. If there's something you want to do and the same thing happened for me to get into TV. I, I interviewed with ESPN, but I didn't get hired, ended up quitting my local TV job. It's a long story. And I went through a bunch of jobs just to kind of pay the bills while I freelanced in TV and I kept bugging ESPN, like, here I am, I'm out here, you know, giving, I sent an extra credit, basically. Like they'd have me do an interview, but I'd, then I'd, I'd type out, here's the story I would have written to a company, you know what I mean? Like I'd 
I'd show them I could do more than you're asking me to do. And I just kind of was persistent. There's always that fine line between being obnoxious and showing you're persistent and it's hard to find it. Yeah. But, you know, I kind of wore them down and I think I kind of did the same thing with football. I wasn't like the greatest natural athlete. I could always throw pretty well and I got stronger and could throw better. Um, but I just never gave up on myself. The things I, the two things I wanted to do, I ended up one way or the other doing to, you know, to some degree. And that's it until next time, everybody stay woke.